we have uh, from observation the expectation we live in a single uh, universe so we'd expect consistency and that's what leads you to demand properties of uh, theories that describe the world we live in. Um, if you look at the way we categorize our theories that there are different ways of analyzing them. Some are deemed to lie within the domain of physics or even applied mathematics. We have chemistry, biology, engineering. These usually are regarded as separate disciplines and historically have comparatively little to do with one another. So it's not a surprise when you come down to it and ask questions about who's doing what in scientific terms that answers my question of uh, a unified theory of knowledge, so to speak, in scientific terms, that it, it's rather fragmented still today. So um, we have people who explore the, the, the extremely large scale, um, you might call that cosmology, or the very small scales, again, that's a sort of physical domain, um, subatomic theories going down to uh, extremely short length and time scales. We can have uh, uh, problems that relate to life, where life has come from on this planet, but we have plenty of reasons to suspect that it's probably much more widespread than that. And then questions are posed in rather different ways. Indeed, in modern biology and medicine today, you would find most people not even trying to think in theoretical terms. It's quite a shock, actually, to many physical scientists when they encounter this. It's, it's really a funny clash between two philosophies of science that have been around for, well, overall 500 years or so, what we call a Baconian theory, which says, actually, don't worry about a theoretical underpinning, just make observations, collect data, and interrogate the data. This Baconianism, as it's come to be known, is actually very widespread in modern uh, bi biology and, and medicine, sometimes also called informatics today. And we have the model of a philosophy of science, which is the physicist's one, formulated in a nice and concise way by Sir Karl Popper. So these are two curious knights of the British realm, in fact, whose descriptions of the way science works are at complete odds with one another. A Popperian theory is one where it's fundamentally mathematical, and you can describe reality in terms that are somehow out there objective. We make predictions from these theories and models, and we test them. And if the agreement isn't good enough, well, it could be that the experimental observations are wrong. Every now and then we have to change the theory. But if you practice, as many of our biological colleagues do today, a Baconian approach, there isn't a, an underpinning theory. There's nothing that needs to go wrong. It's just a necessary requirement to keep on collecting data. So once you become uh, influenced by these things and you want to understand uh, in a modern context, tangible things like how I can uh, make sense of the, the human as a scientific entity. Can I predict things about the way a human's life is going to evolve? Which methodology am I going to choose? 
I'm more physically based, I'd like a Popperian theory, but I rapidly run up against people who don't relate to that. So we have a massive clash of doctrines at the heart of these descriptions. So, so there's definitely a, uh, a widespread movement in scientific circles for in, in life and medical sciences, which is about uh, just capturing data. Don't worry about theoretical underpinnings. And indeed, some people don't would deny there is a, a value to having a theory. So the idea is just continue to collect data. At some point, though, I think you may understand what I'm getting at. As our understanding of science, the question I was posing earlier, progresses, we're asking, have our theories got some validity that's much more universal? Never mind a theoretical physicist's claim about universality that applies to some areas of, 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 of observation which now we know to be exceedingly limited. I'm talking about areas of our own direct experience. So we'd expect to have methods that can be applicable in the medical area just as surely as they could be in chemistry or in physics or in material science or engineering. And that's the type of question that we're talking about here. Is there some crazy rupture that suggests that things just are too amorphous, that they, didn't, they cannot admit theoretical underpinnings? Certainly that's not my position on this at all. I would agree that it's beneficial in areas where we don't understand a whole lot to do a lot of observational work initially because that will help you sort of unravel some of the, the uh, maybe correlations that do exist but the big challenge is then to make sense of that in a deeper way and that's usually forgotten and unfortunately you know we get the conflation of uh, causality with cause uh, uh, with correlation there which is which is clearly a, a false one so if I were involved, as I am actually, in some of the things we do today, in trying to support um, a rather forward-looking version of medicine, which is, say, given some information about a patient, it'll usually be in digital form. It could be their genome. It might be that and a lot of other data. It might include imaging data and so on. I need to assist a clinician who has to make a decision what intervention to carry out. What method am I going to use to do that? Well, the methods that we're interested in using there are the good old ones that ultimately are popperian, a physics-based one. But that pushes the, the, the modeling and the theory into areas where it's quite unfamiliar and creates interesting challenges. And that's just part of the whole agenda that I'm interested in. How far can you use your theoretical methods across science as a whole? There are plenty of other domains we could discuss. So, so some of the biggest questions remain open, and the things like consciousness have to be continually studied to be apprehended. That doesn't mean we've got a binary, we don't understand that, so we understand nothing about the way life evolves. It's very far from that. that it's much more of a call it what you will, a sigmoidal curve of understanding growing and being able to benefit from that understanding to continually accumulate improved methods of, of prediction, which in the medical area will transform the whole domain. So you just stick with personalized medicine for a moment. We don't have to keep going with that. But the, the questions are to do with, so what if I know your entire genome sequence? Again, if you were a reductionist molecular biologist, 
pulling Dawkins' leg for a moment, you might think that's the blueprint, that's all we need to know. And the rest is then a consequence of what that genome sequences. I don't think anyone seriously believes that to be the case. And the huge number of genome studies that people carry out today show, no matter how much people try to use so-called big data analytics informatics, they cannot get clear correlations that account for disease cases which are based solely on genomic data. This is extremely a uh, rare occurrence. So you've got an entanglement of data coming at those levels with higher levels of information. It could be organ system levels. So when you look at the organ level, it might be the heart. If you had a problem with your heart and you have to go to see a doctor and the doctor has to perform surgery, are they going to look up your genome sequence before they carry out that surgery? It's, of course, not going to happen. In the long run, in the future, we will benefit from that information, but as it were, in zeroth order, they will use information which is at a higher level. And you can build models, physically-based models, of the heart at those levels, which can be very helpful for predicting uh, what kind of in intervention should be carried out. But you will not need, at first level, any information on the genomic component. What the problem is, which level you select mm -hmm. to, take, to take as the primary one to base your analysis on. This is the same actually through all of science. So we talk about physics, you the idea of chemistry somehow sitting off it, maybe biology and engineering. Mm -hmm. but, but, and it doesn't have to be the organic or, or the medical. The mm -hmm. same analogies pertain there. We may have discussed these things. If I'm trying to design new materials, this is going to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the modern era, there's been some interesting developments in the last week which relate to this, but we all know not, it's not sustainable to keep running cars, so automotives or aerospace things based on steel. And I would expect within 50 years or probably a lot less, people will have made different types of materials. They're as strong, they're probably tougher, have greater durability, and they are far less heavy. So they won't require anything like the amount of energy to... to um, move around and that's part of the, the drive we're interested in that but how do you produce those materials how do you actually go about creating them this is a, another analogous challenge i need to know chemistry i need the physics and the chemistry of what the ingredients are to mix but then i need to be able to predict engineering properties out of them the mechanical properties strength toughness durability which are usually reserved to some other domain to discuss with their own concepts. This isn't workable now. So we have to have a framework in which we can put these things together. Or rather, the question is, does such a framework exist mm -hmm. and can I do it? I mean, clearly my view is that that's possible, but it brings different approaches and concepts together, sometimes different philosophies and mindsets that need to actually be properly aligned. Yes. Uh, the opportunities that come the way of chemistry to promote itself are usually spurned and squandered by the establishment in the field. I think I've already mentioned one in passing a few minutes ago, and that's to do with the origin of life. I mean, actually, the origin of life on Earth is fundamentally a chemical question. Mm -hmm. How did the first self-replicating molecules emerge if they did from some Darwinian soup? And that's a chemical question. And, and therefore, it's the equivalent of consciousness or origin of evolution, uh, 
cosmology and things like this. The thinking person wants to know about it, and yet the community has spurned it on the grounds that it's somehow not a respectable discipline. The chemists have never pursued it properly. I think the pressure is growing to do it because it's like, again, cosmology. Quite a long time ago, we had people speculating. There's now a lot of data out there. You know, your theories can be tested. The same thing is true for origins of life scenarios. And all these exoplanets are going to reveal life before too long. Small things, I imagine. And we need to explain where these things are coming from. That is a purely chemical question, in my opinion. So there's a, there is just a, a lack of uh, encouragement for that training which focuses a lot on detail not the bigger picture True. but i think even you know these chemical companies have undergone a, a change in the last 20 or more years mm -hmm. where whereas they were very influential probably after the, the second world war in encouraging the development of methods that had a strong academic base mm -hmm. um in the modern era right exigencies are such that they leave the research to the academics and they're mm -hmm. much more interested in short-term um, benefits so they're actually far less influential in supporting that kind of chemistry so it, it does it has had an impact on the way chemistry is run you might think beneficially because there is less direct influence from mm -hmm. industry but I think it's probably suffering partly as a result of a lack of that interaction mm -hmm. because when you have real-world problems to solve may sound dirty and messy but they can often lead to very interesting new ideas and there's a comparative lack of right well I, I mean the research agenda may seem curious to people who just look at what I'm doing uh, randomly as if it's kaleidoscopic but it's not it's always been systematic exactly along the lines we're talking about the fundamental thing I'm interested in is how I connect an, an understanding of things on the very small scales with the larger levels, or technically microscopic to macroscopic. And that might be seen as enshrined in the relationship between atoms and molecules and thermodynamics, um, like a classical description from the 19th century, 20th century, Boltzmann, etc. But that program is still there, and that's the, the thing that, as it were, the hope that makes you believe that it is possible, as long as you can connect microscopic descriptions to larger scale, you have indeed the hope of being able to predict all these things, whether it's inanimate, animate matter, in terms that relate to these, these shorter length scales where it's necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, going back to the industry end of this, if someone wants to make a product, no matter how mundane it is, it could be a shampoo or something like that, the next formulation that's going to make them a lot of money has to be chemically specific. They need to know the chemicals, the molecules that are made up, mm -hmm. that are in there. And they want to know what the properties are of the material when you squeeze it out of the tube. So at this moment in time, it's completely ill-defined, that relationship, because it's not so systematically laid down. But that's the sort of thing, from an applied point of view, I'm interested in. Can I, how can I dial up? chemical structures, the molecules that go into something, and then tell you, without in principle doing an experiment, what the properties would be. That's the sort of um, motivation. So it's a good question, that how do you relate the two together? They, appears to be, they appear to be completely at odds with one another. And depending on who you're dealing with, they are, because the education and training of the people concerned is so different.
but if you have enough understanding of what's going on between the two, you can draw both beneficially. That was something that's hinted at in some of the descriptions we're giving you. So if I have a complicated process in a cell, it might be you know a, a whole sequence of chemical reactions in metabolism, or the means with which a virus infects uh, me or someone else, I need to know all the steps that are going to occur in that process. If it was for medicinal purposes, I need that information because I might want to target one of the proteins involved. I need to have the detail, ultimately some microscopic information. But I've got so much data in the models that I will not have all the information for. I need to get experimental insight. So people have to go around measuring things. There's no escape from that for most of that type of work. There's a deep relationship between the, the two. No one's going to come up with a model that works without going comparing with experiment. But it is the, the intelligent use of experimental measurements that we're after there, because that goes to this concept of Bayesian methods. I will perform the right number of experiments to make measurements of, say, the time series evolution of a given set of proteins. And from those data, when things are varying in time, I can map that onto my deterministic Popperian model and infer, you know, what's the most likely value of all the parameters that would be Popperian ones that would fit into the model. So it's an intelligent interaction between them that's really necessary in many complicated situations. Okay, for example, in the work of Deb Pearl and others, uh, we do share a, a similar take on this. I mean, we, the, the problems we face in the bio and biomedical world today are a serious potential clash between two approaches which should be made aligned for the beneficial reasons I just outlined. Use data with Papyrian methods in a Bayesian fashion, you can extract deterministic descriptions in a desirable way. But we ha have uh, the real fundamental limitation there, I have to say, is education and training of people in these disciplines. So one of the things we may be moving on to, and it should appear in descriptions that are given in the future, is that if I want to be able to educate and train a doctor to carry out the sort of interventions that I mentioned earlier, they have to understand a lot more about the theoretical basis of their subject. Otherwise, they are not going to be able to champion these approaches and we will be spending years with fingers crossed hoping that they do adopt them. So there is a big, big challenge there. And there's a lot of work that goes on in population studies, which by definition almost is, is Baconian. So we get lots of correlations about the way individuals in a population may, may their, their, their heart failures may be influenced by various uh, environmental considerations, etc. But that has to be seen as only the first step in drilling down to the individual. And we, we clearly don't have that understanding yet. The thing is, the principles are similar in what we call today methodologies that, that involve multi-scale or multi-physics capability. That does mean precisely what I was saying earlier, that I have different descriptions of, say, matter at different levels, tried and tested, believed in by different communities, say engineers, physicists, chemists, if we believe these are correct, we have to be able to get them together and make them work. And you would like to believe as a physicist foundationally, and that's my inclination there, 
that I know how to derive higher level descriptions of matter from lower level ones. I d in theoretical terms, in principle, yes. In practice, this is the challenge. How do I start from that set of molecules? Their description is quantum mechanical. So in some of the work we do, we will do, be doing quantum mechanics, calculating electron densities mm -hmm. of molecules and complicated entities, materials as well. And we know that we'll never, and this is the relationship with Dirac, we'll never be able to get the largest scales that matter to us by cal doing calculations on those length and time scales. We have to find ways of extracting the key information that comes out of those calculations and passing it to higher levels where we get more length and time scale um, return from our investigations. Mm -hmm. So typically today we are actively involved in what I call three level couplings. We have to do quantum mechanics, we do Newtonian mechanics, and we may be doing something that's getting towards a continuum level and or something between uh, a Newtonian mechanics for atoms and the continuum levels. We call it a coarse-grained representation. It's more arbitrary. We cluster more atoms together. All the time we do this because of the computational complexity. I can't do a large simulation with a lot of electrons in it. It's far too expensive. But if I can reduce the level of complexity, the number of degrees of freedom down, I can do larger scale simulations. But those simulations should, should be as accurate and as faithful to the molecular information as possible. So it's a challenge, A, to figure out what the key information is that passes between the levels, and then to be able to do those calculations to the scale that gives you high fidelity predictions. Oh, yeah. So it's really connecting multiple levels, and most of the time those levels are done, there are experts in different departments in academic circles. I'm an expert in quantum mechanics or the electronic structure of matter. There's someone who's an expert in some higher level representation and we m might need to deal with an engineer who knows how to deal with finite element analysis. Mm -hmm. But I don't want those things to stand alone. I need them to be integrated. Oh, very, very, it's sure. quite easy to give uh, real world examples. In fact, the latest thing we did got picked up by, by Toyota, which is a car, you know, famous car manufacturer. They put out a patent back in the late 80s, which was going to the thing I mentioned earlier, the desirability of creating what are called nanocomposite materials, no metal in them, which would be as strong and durable as steel and other things. So their first patent on that was found by mixing some, a material as banal as clay with nylon, and they found some extremely interesting properties. In fact, within a few years, they were making some, and they still make some car parts out of that, but not the entire frame. So, but the idea is, tell me, as the experimentalist, what ingredients I should mix in order to get the really important properties I want. Low density, strength, toughness, that the thing won't undergo fractures, etc. So fracture is a classic example of multi-scale challenge. It involves, at the smaller scale, a chemical bond breaking. That's an electron rearrangement, so there's going to be quantum mechanics in this. But then its manifestation on the largest scale could be the, the whole wing of an aircraft is fractured as a result of that bond. So we need to know how those things are connected, and we have to find ways in these scenarios to stop it. So I need to be able to design a material that will inhibit, could be so-called self-healing material, that just doesn't allow a fracture to propagate. So at the largest scale, 
of everyday life, it's clear what we're trying to do here. And it just requires all of these bits and pieces to be brought together. Well, at this point, I've been, you know, I've, I've, the, the biggest motivation for me has been the purely intellectual one. How do you do this kind of thing? And when you have some ideas that are good, you find you can apply them in particular instances. Mm -hmm. So I'm now telling you about where we can apply this. Right. And I haven't been talking to them for very long. But the, the same approach is necessary when I'm dealing with these medical issues, because I know I've got to get the molecular end in, but it could have a manis manifestation that might be a heart. Okay, here's an example of the sort of thing we're after there. It, it could be uh, in the genomic era, we're going to know, if we don't already, individual genome sequences. Actually, this is happening already for cases like HIV, because we know the sequence of the virus that's doing the infecting, which is much shorter than ours. So a virologist will get that sequence on a patient. And that's useful information, because if you know what the sequence is, it might give you an, an inclination as to which drug to give the patient. Well, how would you do that? Existing approaches are Baconian. Data is collected on endless patients and stored in databases, and some form of expert system is run on them. So when a new sequence comes in from a virologist, it's matched up to everything that was done before, and someone will infer that the best treatment now is the same thing as what was done for some group of people before. This is not a reliable approach to individual med medical treatment. If you can find a Popperian method, you'd be much better off. What is that method? That's one of the things I'm interested in, and that is doing sequence-specific studies from the virus, how it binds to individual drugs. It's no longer a generic uh, task that a drug company is interested in. So the drug companies have their problems now. They're trying to produce drugs as blockbusters, one size fits all. This is not going to work in the future anyway. We have to tailor drugs to individuals. And the challenge there is, can I match drugs to individual sequences? That's actually quite a demanding thing. It has quantum mechanics in it. It has classical mechanics. And it connects up to the way that the patient's treated clinically. So it, too, is a multi-level thing. But this is a great example, not only of having to do that on a patient-specific basis as an academic exercise, I need the answers on a timescale that's relevant to a clinical decision. Otherwise, it's academic in the worst sense of the word. I publish a paper which looks good, but the patient died. So that's another part of what I'm interested in doing, getting these answers on very fast timescales. So it turns medical science into one of the biggest challenges in computational science that exists. A, I have to have secure patient data, which, you know, has all those privacy issues around it. Then I've got to launch pretty powerful computations in a hurry and get the answers back to some clinician. And this is all what I'm telling you, state of the art. But imagine the clinical uh, and medics training today, they haven't got a clue what I'm doing. And the MRC, which is our Medical Research Council, distinguished though it is, has funded many people who got Nobel Prizes in physiology and medicine, doesn't fund anything which has anything to do with computers. It doesn't understand their role. And that's because the peer review group are people who are trained in an anti-diluvial approach to the subject. I mean, I do quite a lot of this work. Where do I get my funding from? Actually, it's like 
other things I do, origins of life, I contribute to, but you can't get large funding opportunities there. Mm -hmm. So I do it with the resources I get from other places, really, in what I call the interstices. Or it's not obvious to people where it's coming. Yeah, let's, I mean, there are limits to what we're talking about here. I'm not trying to go from the blockbuster one size fits all to every single person has their mm -hmm. own. That would be a, a reach too far. But you know, there's this idea of stratification, which simply means clustering into groups for whom we know there are maybe adverse reactions to the drug that's on the market. I mean, it is quite shocking how, how low percentages of the population can actually respond positively to the drugs that, are, that exist. In cancer, it's well under 50%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, in a sense, scientifically, we owe it to people to be able to understand better what drugs to give them. So it's not a question of suddenly having to give everyone a different one, but finding different sets of drugs. It does challenge the model which typically costs $2 billion and up to 17 years to produce one drug. I need lots more of them. And computational methods of the sort I'm talking about are going to have an impact on speeding all that up, no question. So at the, mo at the moment, we're supposed to have the biggest such project in the world, which is this 100,000 Genomes Project. It's a personal initiative of Prime Minister David Cameron. Yeah. And that's he put £100 million into this of the order of two years ago, and it's just getting going now. Mm -hmm. It's looking at disease patients, that number, to try and make sense of their genomic sequences. Actually, the approach there will be overwhelmingly Baconian, by the mm -hmm. way. But somehow the idea is that we will get enough information that it will help us with drug discovery. But you see, mm -hmm. drug discovery turns, it needs this more popular approach. I have to have a specific drug that I design. I can't just do random, you know, stochastic methods of throwing trial entities at people and hoping it's going to work. It's such a, 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 an intensive Explosive. approach. It's ex expensive and intensive and one of the points I was making earlier, in a pharmaceutical company, unlike many companies that make chemicals, actually most companies, you were talking about shampoos and other things, that exist, uh, it might be a company like Procter & Gamble or Unilever. They don't actually have chemists who make these compounds. They reach for the shelf and look for suppliers who provide a set of chemicals that they will mix because those suppliers are in the business of doing the chemistry. But they know what it takes to make their compounds, and that's the ones they will choose from. If you're doing pharmaceutical design, it's very different. You have to make your own, and that's really time-consuming. And that goes to this problem that chemistry is often unreproducible. People in a drug company will try to make a drug that looks like something that someone synthesized before and they have to carry out certain steps. Unfortunately, there are usually several. And even if the compound looks similar to what was reported in the literature, usually some steps just don't work. So I know, you know, the big pharma companies now try to collect data on failed chemical reactions as well to save themselves all the time of trying to make things that actually we know didn't work but nobody reported it and that's really a huge amount of effort. Well you can imagine what I would be advocating and that would be a lot more uh, scientific basis to what's going on in medicine. I mean, my humble opinion is it isn't particularly scientific today. It's a lot of um, sort so, of experience yeah. and rote knowledge Mm -hmm. But it, it's not informed by proper mechanistic understanding. In the end, we need that kind of mechanistic understanding to have a predictive capability in the discipline. But what's important, I think the example, one or two examples I've given you, and I can give you more, 
are all pointing towards the fact that we now have enough theoretical knowledge to build models that have predictive capability in the medical area. Mm -hmm. And today, many many clinicians would admit to you that their decision making is is uh, a bit a finger in the air job. You know, they have to take a decision. And I know from discussing them, many would like to use better methods to support those decisions. Doesn't need to imply we're going to do away with doctors at all. But it's just it's enhancing the value or quality of the decision making. But it all plays into the fact that we do not want to do, you know, repeat, you know, too much animal testing in the future. If you can have a virtual human model, clearly you can do testing on that and you don't have to do the amount of animal testing people are doing today. And it'll be more high fidelity stuff. I mean, I can't re refrain from also mentioning because I use this for high fidelity modeling and simulation for medical purposes. A lot of people who are not experienced with these things think, oh, how can we ever trust the outcome of a prediction, especially from a computer, mm -hmm. if it's on a human being, right? And so somehow it's got to be 100% correct or we'll never use it. This, this is certainly not true. What does it mean for a model to be 100% correct? A model is always going to be only a... It will never be. But, so, but high fidelity, as a term I use, is enough to, to be able to assist with clinical decision-making, and there will have to be regulations that define what those things are. They have to be reproducible, that it doesn't depend only on me doing it, but the next person will get the same result when they carry that out. This is all stuff you can standardize. But, you know, it goes also to this sort of military-industrial complex thing in the U.S., where that term I borrow from is, is from sort of weapons, nuclear weapons stockpile stewardship, because that's the area in the U.S. where the government has thrown huge amounts of money at computing in order to, for example, with a test ban treaty in place, we have to do simulations of these things, and they set the milestones for the, the computer power in order to reach a level of fidelity that's deemed to be acceptable for some type of simulation of a test. And this is just an ongoing thing in the US. So if you can do it for nuclear weapons and the scale of the computers that are there will match the things we need to do in these other areas, no question. I agree there's a question mark about who's going to pay for it. And in the US you might have to pay for your simulation if you want an enhanced result. I've been in discussions like that, for example, some of my work is funded by the EU in eHealth, and there the EU assumes, the, the, the guys in the commission in Brussels assume that everyone will get access to these techniques, it'll be free at the point of delivery, mm -hmm. right. but the US colleague would expect you to pay a premium to get mm -hmm. a computer simulation done to enhance your decision. This is all part of the way that the future will evolve. I think, you know, in the long run, to do something that's really personal, it's going to be Popperian. It'll have, it will have vestiges of Baconianism around it. Well, I want to take data that would be on me, for example. It could be imaging data, genomic data, and other things. I just want that. I don't want to have a prediction of what is going to happen to me based on statistics from other people. And that's still better than what people are doing today, because it gives good indications. But ultimately, we want these avatars that are personalized as accurately as they can to, to ourselves. And it ceases in the end to be only something for ill people who are ill. It's relevant to people in a state of wellness, as my friend Leroy Hood is talking all the time about wellness things. He wants to do 100,000 
Genomes Project on wellness because he's not trying to do the disease case that the UK is about, just to help people understand their predicament and to take decisions, lifestyle choices based on that information.